This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek graphic novel collection. Get your first volume, Countdown, for only $4.95 when you sign up today at eaglemoss.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 226, The Quality of Life. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart from messages, morals, and meanings, keeping a close eye out for any part of it that might have sprung to life on its own. This week, the quality of life. The one where a few daft punk helmets gain sentience, and we ponder an age-old question. If you're mining the surface of a planet, why do you do it from orbit? Seriously. I mean, that just seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, John, that just seems like you're creating so many more troubles. Did you got to keep the thing in orbit? Hey, you know what? Talk to Nero. I get, well, just talk to Nero. You know, I was going to say we could ask yeah. him, but he's, uh, well, dead in 200 yeah. years. <laughs> I don't know how that whole thing works. It's wibbly wobbly. Yeah. It's time you want Not me. Not sure. Yeah. Not sure. Uh, John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first... But first, a word from Eagle Moss. Our friends at Eagle Moss want us to remind you how cool the official Star Trek graphic novel collection is. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Harlan Ellison City on the Edge of Forever graphic novel. And remember that these are officially authorized by CBS Studios, the official Star Trek graphic novel collection. And Ken, I don't know if you ever collected comic books. I did only a little bit, and it was only the things that I was already into, like Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So I just randomly would buy a couple of comics here and there. But now... Now, this is sort of like the ultimate collector's dream, the best of 50 years of Star Trek comics. Yeah, one of the things I like about this, actually, because I was never a good comic book collector for mm. kind of the same reason that you're talking about. If I bought a comic book, I wanted to read it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not what collectors do. I mean, like, like <laughs> I know there's some people, right. there are crazy people who like buy toys and leave them in the box. Mm, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, that just seems nuts to me. And same goes for the comic <laughs> books. And yet, I know if I'm holding like, you know, something that's sort of rare, something that's sort of valuable, I, I shouldn't just be thumbing through the pages. So what's really cool about these books is they're books. They're made to, you know, they're made for people who maybe you want a collection, but not like something that's so precious, you're not going to open it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is collecting those stories so that you can sit down and read them. And yet they're, you know, really pretty. Um, it covers 50 years of Star Trek comics, um, like decades. I'd say like maybe even five decades. At least. At <laughs> least. <laughs> right. Of, of stories, um, you know, all across uh, all across all sides of the Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek universe. Yeah. And we mentioned uh, writers like Harlan Ellison. But we've also got David Gerald, D.C. Fontana, Roberto Orsi, uh, Alex Kurtzman, Brandon Braga. And actually, Brandon Braga, that brings us to what we're talking about today. Yeah, I was actually flipping through a Hive earlier, story by Brennan Braga, uh, Ben's Time, and Ben's series as well. You get a uh, you get a resurrected Data out of this. You get the Borg Queen. Locutus is back. And, oh, hey, whoa, is that seven of nine? Oh, what? Yes, what? it is. Yes, indeed. Uh, my point is, even if you've seen every minute of Star Trek that's ever hit any screen, uh, there are a lot more stories to explore. And uh, this is a great way to do it. 
Yep. So each volume of this collection puts together multiple issues from a specific story arc and era in Star Trek history and includes a bonus reprint of a classic adventure from the comic archives. So in, in this one that we're talking about, Hive, I love that at the end of this, you get a reprint of the gold key Star Trek comic book issue, Automated Destroyers. And it's a sort of, you know, thematic tie-in where you have these machines destroying a planet. It's pretty fantastic. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I glanced at that story as well. Sort of reminds yeah. me of Doozers from Fraggle Rock. Absolutely. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, more evil or more <laughs> destructive, maybe. Anyway, right. all the publishers are here. Like John just said, I mean, you've got – I don't remember who actually published Hive initially, but you've got a couple of different publishers in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the publishers are here. Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Paramount Comics, Wildstorm, Tokyo Pop, and IDW, who, of course, are still printing uh, Star Trek comics even as we speak. That's very true. Now, you can start your collection today with Volume 1, Countdown, for only $4.95 with free shipping. In this gripping prelude to J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek movie, you'll uncover the circumstances that drove Nero and Spock to travel back to the 23rd century, and in doing so usher in the kelvin universe bonus content includes the first gold key star trek comic book from 1967 and not unlike the tiny little starships about which we've spoken in the past uh, subsequent editions ship twice monthly and they're delivered you know straight to you and just like with the starships as well you can cancel your subscription at any time For details on the entire collection, including a host of exclusive free gifts, and to order, visit eaglemoss.com slash missionlog. That address again is eaglemoss.com slash missionlog. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. More information headed your way now. (laughs) If you would like to get in touch with us, we would really appreciate you doing so. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now... And now, and now, John Champions Trivia. <laughs> well, trivia for today's show, The Quality of Life. The episode was written by Naren Shankar. So we've mentioned Naren before, uh, but we haven't dug too deeply yet. He shared a writing credit with Ronald D. Moore on The First Duty, but this is the first episode on which he gets all the credit to himself. Naren got his PhD in engineering physics in 1990, and he decided that he wanted to write instead, so he sent a spec script to The Next Generation. And they didn't want to buy the script. But he got a pretty amazing consolation prize, which was to be invited to join their team of interns, and he found himself acting as a science consultant on the show. Now, the story credit actually goes to L.J. Scott. This is L.J.'s only professional credit in entertainment. Um, some interesting ideas that were kicked around and didn't make it into the final script. Uh, the exocomps were originally just boxes, just no, no anthropomorphizing at all. Hmm. And uh, they were actually called metacomps. And they had no personality quirks, no uh, no robot shoes, uh, nothing to signal anything to the audience. 
Also, there would have been some exploration about the Enterprise computer and whether or not it was conscious. No, nope, so I guess nope. you and I are not the first ones to talk about that. <laughs> I think we're the first ones to talk about it openly, though. Yes. Yeah. yeah I think so. And the horror implied by that. But Indeed. Yeah. yeah. The episode is directed by Jonathan Frakes. Who? Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's some... Look him up. He's on IMDb, I think. <laughs> All right. Um, and we have to talk about the props. So possibly the most important piece of sci-fi technology ever committed to film. It's the blinking, flashing, beeping thing that we first saw on regular one in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And Ken, we can still get it from modern props for under $800 a week. So I will tell you, here's what I've been thinking, actually. Mm -hmm. And I probably should pitch this to you off mic, but I'll go ahead and do it here. Um, I say we rent it. Yeah. And take it to Vegas with us for whatever convention, next convention. It's huge. And we charge. It's huge. Well, hold on, though, because we're going to make our money back. Okay. We charge uh, people $10 to have their picture taken with it. Oh, yeah. Or $5 to have their picture taken with it and us. Oh, it, even better. Yeah. <laughs> it seems. That is quite the value. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think it could be. Yeah. I love it. So your friend Rick Sternbach designed the exocomps, and they were operated as puppets on set. And uh, they digitally matted in the third exocomp when we see the three together. They actually only built two for the purposes of production. Hmm. And uh, guest stars, man, it is so great to see Kelso. There he is in the transporter room. It's Kelso. It's been like 100 years or more since we saw Kelso. All right, it's a totally different Kelso. This is Transporter <laughs> Chief Kelso, played by Jay Downing. Uh, he's been in the biz since the 1980s, and this is his only Star Trek appearance. He later had recurring roles on Viper and The Young and the Restless. Will you do me a favor? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know who the original Kelso was. All right, so think way back to mm -hmm. the second pilot where no man has gone before. Okay. So Lieutenant Kelso... This, you know, nice looking young blonde guy sitting at the helm. He is the guy who gets uh, choked by Gary Mitchell, played by Gary Lockwood, using his psionic powers and wraps that cord around his neck. Oh, yeah. So that that's technically it's technically the first Star Trek death. Really? Yeah. Except the Zaz actually bought it for the first time anybody knew. In, in the man trap. An air date order, sure. I, I, I would take nothing away from the Zaz. Yeah, no, you can't that. take anything away from the Zaz, no. man. You just can't do no. that. No, but, uh, but in this case, we, we've got a, a call back to Kelso and how we miss Kelso. All right, and we also have Ellen Bree as Dr. Farallon. Now, she's been working steadily as an actor, mostly in TV, since the 1970s. She was a regular on the short-lived The Amazing Spider-Man in 1978. She has no fewer than three appearances on The Love Boat, and she had a recurring role on St. Elsewhere. Lucky for her, her boyfriend was a producer on the show. They later married. This is her only Star Trek appearance, but she did appear twice with William Shatner on Boston Legal. And interestingly, she went uncredited, but worked as Margot Kidder's stunt double in Superman. Mining in space makes total sense. Mining from space. Someone please make me understand. Again with the beard. 
at a poker table. The bearded dwarf and the bearded Riker are talking to Jordy about his new beard. Beverly is not into the whole beard thing, but to raise the stakes of the game, she suggests that if she wins, then all the men at the table have to go clean-shaven. If she loses, then she'll go brunette, which she hates, but oh! Saved by the bell. It's Picard ordering all senior staff back to work since they have arrived at Tyrus 7A to monitor the Tyran Particle Fountain. It's a device to improve that classic 24th century occupation, mining. It works, but it's not working great. Jordy tells Dr. Farallon, who heads the project, that what he sees isn't the miracle breakthrough the Federation had hoped for. He's got to report back to Captain Picard, who will report to his superiors on their progress. Dr. Farallon, though, is so invested in this whole thing, she just knows it'll work. She continues the tour of the facility, but something goes terribly wrong. A huge energy flux in their power system. Jordy recommends that they shut everything down, but Farallon has a trick up her sleeve, an exocomp. It's a small robot that hovers into action, goes to the side of the problem, and miraculously fixes it. Crisis averted. The end. Oh. Wait, no, hang on, sorry. There's more. Act 1. Farallon and Jordy come back to the Enterprise with an exocomp for study. It's essentially a robotic tool that the researchers have been using for years, but Farallon has made some modifications over time. These little guys replicate their own tools and adapt to the job, and they learn. Farallon tries to bend Picard's ear a little about their mining equipment. She really wants his recommendation that Starfleet take their mining technology to Karima 3, and the exocomps will be just the tool to get their mining operation back up to peak efficiency. Picard is cool with them doing some work on it, and Farallon requests that Data assist her. Everything is going along well. Data is impressed with how much work the exocomps can actually do, but one last job doesn't go as well. Actually, the exocomp doesn't go at all. When it's programmed to go seal a plasma conduit, it simply exits the hatchway and won't budge. A moment later, the control pad in Farallon's hands short-circuits and gives her a jolt, and then the hatchway where the exocomp was supposed to go to work explodes, sending debris into the station. Act 2. The malfunctioning exocomp is brought back to the Enterprise for a deeper look, and what Jordi and Data find is puzzling. It had created many times more new circuit paths than normal and had burned out the section of its programming that links it back to the control pad. Dr. Farallon just says sometimes they go bad. Jordy tells Data that the explosion occurred because there was a microfracture no one had detected before, kind of like the Exocomp knew it was up, but of course it couldn't because, you know, it's just a machine taking orders. Data, well, now he's a little more intrigued. In his quarters, Data does some more investigation. The Exocomp's command pathways are now working. In fact, the diminutive robot had burned out its own circuitry earlier, then initiated a self-repair a couple of hours later, like it was protecting itself. Jordy finds Dr. Farallon at 10 forward. Don't worry, she's just indulging in tea. And she admits that she's pushing things too fast with the work she's doing. Speaking of pushing things too fast, Dr. Crusher is tending to her own wounds, apparently from a Batleth lesson with Worf, when in comes Data with a question he should already know. What's the definition of life? Crusher throws around the generic scientific definitions, growth, reproduction, adaptation to environment, etc., but Data has at least one challenge to that definition, himself. 
What's perplexing him is the moment that something goes from a combination of parts, mechanical or biological, to being alive. Crusher is stumped, but she says it's just one of those age-old questions. The struggle to find the answer is part of the adventure. That's actually all Data needs to hear. Back on the mining station, Dr. Farallon is preparing another experiment just when Data beams in to ask her to stop. He thinks the exocomps are alive. Act 3. Picard calls the senior staff together, along with a reluctant Dr. Farallon, to talk over the issue. She doesn't want to be there since she's so busy, but Picard reminds her that discovering new life is part of their whole mission. I mean, just go back and watch the opening credits, duh. Data explains that the exocomp had disabled and then repaired itself in an attempt at self-preservation. Farallon still thinks any abnormal behavior is just a glitch. She created them as tools unlike, say, Data, who was created with the purpose of being alive. The only thing to do is to bust out with some science. They'll orchestrate a test, program the exocomp to take care of a simple problem, but within a minute they'll simulate another problem which should force the exocomp to steer itself clear of the danger. The test fails. Well, it's all good news for the exocomp and Dr. Farallon. Nothing was harmed. No disaster took place. The exocomp did not flee the scene. It just followed its commands. Overnight, Data carries out the test many more times, each with the same result. Dr. Crusher stops by for a visit. She wants to understand why it's so important to him, and Data explains that the possibility of intelligent machine life other than him is intriguing. Just then, the exocomp returns on its own, but this is different. It has replicated a different tool for itself, leading Data and Beverly to surmise that the little robot saw through the previous test, that there was no real danger, and simply completed repairs to the false overload signal. It knew. Act 4. Picard himself visits the station to meet with Dr. Farallon and see how things are coming along. She's full of promises that things will work out just fine. How could they not? They've got equipment that's blinking and beeping and flashing, blinking and beeping and flashing. They're flashing and they're beeping. But then something goes wrong. Power in the station starts to fail, and Geordi is sure that the room there will be flooded with radiation. They've got to evacuate back to the Enterprise. The first group of researchers gets away, but Picard and Geordi stay behind to find someone who's missing. Geordi makes his way there, but an explosion takes out that missing man and nearly fries Geordi in the process. With radiation surging, there's nothing the Enterprise crew can do to get the captain and Geordi back. On the station, Geordi's got a temporary fix, a local force field to protect them. But time is still running out. In a little more than 22 minutes, they'll die. Commander Riker, now in charge of the situation, looks for options. They could rig up a photon torpedo to cause just enough damage to the station's particle stream. That'll take too long, though. Dr. Farallon has a suggestion. She could program the exocomps to explode in such a way to disrupt the beam as well. It's a good plan, but Data then reveals what he has learned. The exocomps do have a sense of survival. They won't allow themselves to be destroyed. But Farallon has a way around it. She'll disconnect their command pathways before programming them. Riker gives the order, and the exocomps are poised to beam out into space near the station. Then the transporter system goes dead. And how might that have happened? Not other than Data locking out the controls. Act 5. Okay, Riker is so not cool with Data subverting his command. This could mean a court-martial, but Data sticks to his guns. 
He cannot sacrifice three lives of the exocomps in order to save Picard and Geordi. In fact, Data offers to go to the station himself to attempt to shut down the reaction, given, though, that he would likely be killed by the radiation. It's his choice, though, a choice not given to the exocomps. And that gives Riker an idea. What if they ask the exocomps if they're willing to take on this dangerous mission? Data starts the process of programming them, but the exocomps reject the idea that they will be beamed into the particle stream. They don't, however, shut down. In fact, they have collectively come up with a new solution, replicated new tools, and fed their own coordinates into the Enterprise transporter. When they beam in, the exocomps start draining power from the station's particle flow, and it's working. It's enough of a drop that Picard and Geordi can be beamed back. With that taken care of, time to get the exocomps out of there safely. When the transporter engages, only two of the little robots come back. One has stayed behind to continue siphoning off that particle flow. Dr. Fairlawn says her goodbyes to Picard and Data. She's had her eyes opened and promises not to treat the exocomps as simple tools anymore. They have much further to go on the particle mining technology, and she hopes for a visit from Starfleet again in the future to see how it's going. It's Data's turn now to tell Picard about the decision he made. He was behaving as an advocate for the life forms that didn't have anyone to speak for them, not unlike Picard speaking for Data when his rights were on trial. Picard is grateful and thanks Data for his very human actions. The end. Are you sure this time? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, see, oh, it, yeah. Okay. it stopped, and then I thought everything <laughs> okay. was good, and but then it kept yeah. going. So, yeah, yeah. So I think we're yeah. good now. Okay. Yeah. Um, Got to say, I'm not sure which I was more excited to see in this episode, either my favorite science fiction prop, as we mentioned earlier, right, or Lieutenant Junior J. Lieutenant Junior J. Lieutenant <laughs> yeah. Junior J. See, I, I couldn't even, I didn't even recognize her that first time. And now yeah. everywhere I look, it's Lieutenant Junior mm-hmm. J. It's like the beginning of that girl, mm-hmm. except with a, you know, a junior grade lieutenant on the Enterprise. Yeah. I'm so glad she was back. Very exciting. Um, by the way, I pointed this out one time with uh, Leonard Nimoy in the original series, but I, I think this is an episode where Brent Spiner had a cold while they were filming. Did you pick that up? Well, okay, there was one point where he was talking and it sounded kind of weird, but I thought maybe that's because he was talking down the Jeffries tube. Mm-hmm. No, I did, mm-hmm. though. Uh, there was more pink around his eyes than I'm used to seeing. Oh, yeah, see? But I was trying to figure out if that was, like, something that was going wrong with the makeup or if they were trying to make him look a bit more human yeah, in this episode. No, I, I, I think it was, uh, I think he was just, you know, having a bad week. Just cold and flu season, huh? Yeah, exactly. Getting the best of the android. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, is the beard an affectation? Uh, is that a rhetorical question? Because isn't everything an affectation? Well, I guess maybe. See, for <laughs> me, I mean, so here's the thing. Right now, I haven't shaved in like two or three days would be my okay. guess. Because, yeah. you know, I work from home. What do I care? Yeah. Um, when I shave, though, I do have a goatee. And mm-hmm. so I guess that's an affectation. But then Riker seemed, like, offended by the oh, idea yeah. that his beard might be an affectation. Oh, yeah. What, what else can it be? Well, <laughs> well I, I guess any personal style choice mm-hmm. could be an affectation. It, it, it is right. something that you choose to do. You know, I think, I, I think Riker is just a little touchy, you know, because he's, he's sort of the um, – maybe he's like the good-looking guy that people weren't looking past those baby blues. And he thought, <laughs> you know, I'll just – I'll try to look smarter – I'll have a beard. And then here's Beverly calling him out on it. 
know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, for, See, for I, me, it's like, I'll try to look lazy. I'll have a beard. Right. right. That's pretty much yeah. I'm tired of shaving. I'll have a beard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know how you feel. So, hey, if we're still in a, you know, the 24th century post-scarcity world, and we, we're not going to get into the money discussion here because every one of our thousands of listeners has an individual opinion about that. Um, right. So what's the push to have Starfleet use this particular type of mining technology? Because Dr. Farallon is really invested in that. Is it just mm -hmm. the bragging rights or is she going to get a big fat paycheck? <laughs> My assumption is it's just better. Like, yeah. like she thinks it's just a more efficient way to do things. I still say land the mining rig on the planet you're trying to mine. Right. <laughs> yes. And it might be even more yeah. efficient. Yeah. But my assumption, no, my assumption is there's not glory nor currency, but just, oh, this will be a better way, you know, once we can figure it out. Right. I mean, for you to ask that question is like, why do we go warp nine? Warp eight is fine. Right. I mean, because nobody's making <laughs> yeah. more money by going warp nine, but it, that's part of the whole Star Trek thing. Right. We're constantly working to better, even if there's no even if there's no gain, no, no monetary gain anyway. I guess other than Zephram Cochran being the, the warp guy, there, mm -hmm. there's nobody who's like really pushing like, no, 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 my warp nine is better. You know, this is like oh. so just like constantly emailing somebody at Starfleet saying, no, 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 but but my warp is better. You should Excuse take me. my warp. Uh -huh. You're forgetting about the dope that came with the uh, with the traveler. I can't remember oh, his name. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh. Of course, there are people still doing that. Now, he was in it for the glory. Yeah, he was the worst. Yeah. He he was terrible. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I mean, people are still working on going, you know, faster, stronger, better. Sure. Yeah. But it's just, you know, we're also proving the ego has not been uh, resolved in the 24th century. So well, there's a bit of ego I, attached to it. Well, I think that's true with the guy who came with the traveler. I don't think that's true yeah. with, uh, I don't think that's true with Dr. Farallon. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I sense, I, I sense a bit of that with her. I think, well. you know, um, <laughs> I, I, I do like, I do like in this episode how that, that access area in the, the mining station, uh, when that plasma conduit blows up and it just mm -hmm. shoots rocks all over the station <laughs> when it explodes, it's like, <laughs> you know. It is a, a curious thing, right? Every now and then you get that thing on, on the bridge where, you know, something will blow up and then just rocks fall from the ceiling like they've got a, like they've got a drop ceiling and they're just keeping rocks up there to, to alert people that they've been hit. You know? Right. It's like, well, it's yeah. like uh, in um, Balance of Terror when every time mm -hmm. the Romulan ship took a hit, like yeah. like plaster would fall from the ceiling. Right, right. Plaster and dirt. It's like Hoover is up there right. and they're repotting plants. It's like, oh, stop, stop with the shaking, you know? Yeah. yeah. What I wondered about actually was who was the guy that ran in to pick up the exocomp? Because mm. like there's, there's a yeah. plasma, there's a plasma, whatever, tube explosion, plasma mm -hmm. conduit explosion. And, you know. The guy runs in, and rocks are flying, and right. steam is pouring out. But you know, get get the helmet. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he's good. I, that that's probably a union thing. He probably has to do that, and nobody else. Maybe so. Yeah. Because yeah, if yeah. somebody trips, yeah. There's a, there's another guy who's coming for the rocks. He's just got to get the helmet up <laughs> right. off the floor. Right. Um, yeah. I had a question actually. So so it was was Jordy jealous of Doctor Farallon? What was going on when Farallon got to the Enterprise? Because when Farallon got to the Enterprise, she's like, oh, wow, Data, you're like, you're awesome. And I love talking to you. And I love talking to you about your head. And Jordy's yeah. like, uh, we're on like, a time crunch here. I've got to. 
and he's like <laughs> he's sighing and he's like he's he's upset and it's like um excuse me data's my friend he's not your yeah. friend he's my friend <laughs> yeah and and i have very few friends who are real so y- yes back yeah. off yeah that yeah but well that's just that's classic jordy right there i think you <laughs> i think you nailed it yeah may well be um, I want to point out some production stuff here. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a great shot near the start of Act Two, and the camera tracks along a glass wall where Jordy and Data are having a conversation that's in engineering. And it's nearly impossible to do with a camera and lighting without seeing the entire crew reflected in that glass. But all we see is just the lights of what's already around them in engineering, like the warp core and all that stuff. Really well done shot, which is extraordinarily difficult to do. And then there's another great shot, uh, a crane shot in Act 3 going from the door just over Beverly's shoulder as she's walking in to find data. The camera kind of follows her but from this really high angle, and you get a nice look at the layout of engineering, that little section of engineering. But it's a nice, fluid, big-budget style shot. Um, And there's also a good deal of subtle handheld camera work in this episode. It's not very common at the time on a show like this, and it really stands out to kind of, I think, enhance the action and the uh, the intensity of what's happening. So, yeah, just those little technical things that really stood out to me. I don't want to talk about what I was going to say now because I'm going back to stupid stuff. No, <laughs> but we always have stupid stuff. I know. So I, 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 you know, I think we have to cover the stupid stuff before we get to All the right. important stuff. Okay. So Farallon's zeal around the exocomps in Act 1. Mm-hmm. Um, reminds me of those things where, you know, you like get a phone call and you want a boat, mm-hmm. you know, and all you have to do is listen yeah. to a pitch about buying a timeshare for three hours, <laughs> not buying it for three hours. I mean, listen to the pitch for three hours about buying the timeshare. Right. And right. then you sit through the three hours. This actually happened to somebody I know. You sit through the oh, three no. hours, and of course, the boat uh, turns out to be a rubber dinghy. Oh, you know, with the with oh. the plastic oars, and that's your boat. Yeah, yeah. And the whole thing with uh, Farallon actually had that sort of bait and switch feel to me, like you yeah. know, come for the mining technology, stay for the Swiss Army robot. <laughs> seemed to <laughs> right. be like like her like that was her whole pitch. It seemed like. Yeah. Well, I, she's so deeply tied into all of it. She uh, she needs the recognition. You know, oh, I, I don't think that's it, dude. I really don't think yeah. that's it. But yeah. OK, I don't know. We All can right. agree to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> so Crusher, uh, Dr. Crusher has an interesting uh, take. She's talking about the, the criteria for life. She says uh, because data is challenging her saying like, well, fire, fire is not alive, but it, it reproduces and it grows and it consumes fuel. And she mm-hmm. says, well, you could use the same argument for growing crystals, but we don't consider them alive. And I'm thinking, yeah, except for the giant one that went around killing entire populations and destroying planets, that was a crystal, and that was alive. Yeah, you're forgetting yeah. another one too. You ugly bag of mostly water. Oh, of course, home yeah. soil, home <laughs> sub home soil. That's right. What up? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and that did strike me as as interesting as well. The uh, the, hmm. the exocomps actually reminded me quite a bit of. Um, the 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 crystal things in home soil or the home oh. soil things in home soil I yeah. suppose funny I I thought you were just going to say they reminded you of batteries not included oh nice no, mm-hmm. no you know I yeah. never saw batteries not included but oh man if you're interested I know where you can get a poster super cheap okay <laughs> great <laughs> talk to me after because I'm okay. sure what you're waiting for the thing that you wanted most in life 
Yeah. Because the battery's not included, Foster. Um, when you talk about that scene between um, uh, Crusher and Data, actually, I found myself marveling at how well-directed she was. I don't know if it's the comfort because they've worked together on set for years or what, but I felt like, honestly, that that Jonathan Frakes really knew how to direct Gates McFadden because she seemed so comfortable in this episode. Like, like it feels like there are lots of times where she's like sort of just there to deliver lines. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. faulting her acting. I don't know if it's that, you know, parts aren't written well for her or if directors just don't pay that much attention to her or what, but I felt like I, I, she felt comfortable to me in those scenes. Yeah. Which I thought was really, uh, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something that made me a tiny bit uncomfortable okay. was, was the test that they have for whether the exocomps are alive. Oh, sure. So Jordy's like, uh, so your argument is that it saved itself because it sends danger. And Data says, yes. And Jordy says, okay, so why don't we just torture them and see what happens? <laughs> and mm-hmm. everybody's like, well, that sounds like a good idea. Yes. Why don't we just scare them to death and, uh, and see what goes. I was also a little confused by, so we know that they're building their own neural pathways. Uh, what's her name? Dr. Farallon has actually said, you know, oh, no, I'm sorry. Jordy said these things might actually give Data a run for his money as far as their computational power, right? Mm-hmm. With, the, with the pathways that they've built now. How does it never occur to anyone that they, that they know that the whole thing's a trick? Hmm. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Because it takes yeah. 35 times. There's the right. one that they did with everybody standing there. Right. And then the other 34 that Data just ran. Right. Right. And then he still has to get to the end of it before he says, oh, you know, maybe they're wise. Maybe they're wise yeah. in this game. Yeah. Uh, I have one last question in all of that. Um, how can it take a shuttle more than 23 minutes to get to that thing that's directly across from the Enterprise? I know. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about that, too. It seemed like that could have been a, a good way to go. Well, they even say it. Like, you know, why don't we send a shuttle? I would never get there in time. Really? It's 23 <laughs> minutes, and it's over there. Yeah. I mean, right. we, we dropped right. – we dropped um, – uh, Picard and 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 young Wesley Crusher mm. off near a planet one time, yeah, and they got there in like six hours, I think, yeah. and and we can see the we can see the thing. Now it's possible that they've given all the shuttles away. <laughs> That's they they do like doing that, yeah. And and Doctor Farallon's like, no, there wouldn't be time because you'd have to get whoever you gave the last one to, you know, to come back. Maybe that's why there's not possibly time to get a shuttle over there. Yeah. I don't know. um hey there's a really nice coda on this episode that talk between data and picard and data references the defense that picard gave for him in measure of a man and Mm -hmm. picard says that what he did now is the most human decision you've ever made really lovely moment really nice uh but i did have to wonder does data still not get court-martialed for (laughs) failing to obey a direct order and subverting the chain of command yeah, it seemed like, hey, chain of command, what? what? You're huh? jumping ahead, mister. Oh, yes. Wait. By about <laughs> a week, I think. Yeah, I found myself wondering the same thing, too. Doesn't Data have to be relieved of duty? Maybe yeah. that's what happens after, you know, after we take the shot outside the Enterprise, the obligatory, the ship's <laughs> flying away shot, you know? Maybe. Like, oh, it's the most human thing you've ever done. Uh, well, next to going to prison, which is uh, up next for our young android friend. Those little machines, I will say, I love them, like XO. Get it? See, it is funny because they are XO comps. 
And there is a song called XO, where the singer says, I love you, like XO. But I am saying it about the machines, called XO Comps. Sometimes, I really think I should have a show of my own. I think you actually mentioned this in your recap. Did Data actually need a definition of life? Nope. Okay. So <laughs> so what was he doing then? Did, what, did he just need Crusher on board, sort of like to back his play? Like he needs to go ahead and get this ball rolling so he doesn't look like the crazy robot coming out and going, all robots are alive. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that was it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I, hmm. Yeah. That's, or was uh, he actually using her as a sounding board? Because what I found myself, and, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say what I found out is I don't quite understand the Socratic method. But I think this was the Socratic method at play, right? Right. Kind of. Because he wants to, because the definition of, to go back and make sure I understood it, which is how I found out, yeah, I might not. Um, the definition of the Socratic method was basically you get somebody to say something and then you say, oh, but what about this? And they say, oh, I didn't really think about that part. And then you're like, ha ha, Socrates, sucker. Can you prove him wrong? <laughs> Which is not, I, I might be mixing that up a little bit too. But he actually, so he does the whole thing, like you mentioned it earlier, like with the fire, right? So yeah. she says, here's the definition of life. And he says, okay, well, by that definition, so's fire. Mm-hmm. And she's like, eh, okay, but not fire. And he's actually, like, I don't know if he is, like, trying to strengthen his argument or if he's trying to get her to come around to his argument. My guess is he's actually, you know, sort of woodshedding an idea. He's, like, trying to he's like trying to sharpen this idea so that when he does go to people, he can be, I am a totally sane robot who says, all robots might be alive. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it seems like he was sort of kicking around the idea. And I was trying to think who else he would talk to. Uh, uh, about that subject with, and there's really not a good answer. You know, I, I think it would just end up in a, a a continuous loop with the computer if he were to pose that question to the enterprise computer, because it would just mm. be the same kind of, you know, very rote answers. Um, I, I don't know that Picard would necessarily have the time to get into it with him. <laughs> um, mm. So, y- yeah, I'm, uh, he honestly could have had that discussion with anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't have to be unless because she is a medical doctor, then she is the person that he would obviously talk to about life. Yeah. But I mean, actually might have been neat. Oof, that's asking a lot, though. Might have been neat to talk to Keiko. Oh, yeah. You know, since yeah. she works with plants and such. But yeah. you know, then you have to add in another character. Plus, you got to pay her. <laughs> because right. yeah. she wasn't part of the episode yeah. otherwise. Plus, she's probably off fighting with Miles about where his socks are. Yeah, well, and, and Keiko, you know, Keiko's got a child who's growing just at an extraordinary rate. So um, <laughs> It's true. That's, yeah. that's true. Yeah, good yeah. point, that. So, um, it, but given that conversation now, Data says to Crusher, like, are, are you saying that it can't be answered? That, that we can't answer that question about where a, a combination of stuff um, becomes life? And mm-hmm. she says, oh. Oh, but it's the struggle that's important. That's what yeah. helps us define our place in the universe. So says <laughs> Dr. Crusher. And I thought of you, Ken, when I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. says Dr. Crusher, who's apparently been reading the memoirs of one uh, James D. Kirk. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. He needs his pain as well. I don't know if you heard that about him. He, he does. He does. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, certainly I thought about that. And, of course, I also thought about um, Measure of a Man mm-hmm. because didn't mm-hmm. we decide – I mean, that's what we've talked about a few times now, that the question is not whether something is alive but how you treat the thing that might be, right? Yeah, right, right. Heard a fascinating interview on the BBC recently, on BBC World News whatever. I can't remember. It comes on twice a day. But um, mm-hmm. there's a group of people trying to figure out now how we deal with robots. Specifically, they want to know how we can classify robots. Um, mm. And the reason they're doing it is because they want to be able to collect taxes on robots, not mm. from robots, because <laughs> nobody's paying robots. But that's part of the problem, right? Companies right. that use robots instead of people, uh, suddenly there are people who can't pay taxes. And so then the state is not being supported as well right. as it might have been, plus those people who used to pay taxes are still going to need services. And so you got a group of people saying, okay, how do we classify robots then? And the person that I heard interviewed argued that we really shouldn't change our classification that much, but we should just keep looking at them as machines or tools and not give them anything that even approximates anything like individual status. Mm-hmm. And her argument was, and I think she actually said this, uh, it might uh, provide a certain amount of social unease if we as people suddenly start wondering about our primacy in the world. Hmm. And I couldn't yeah. help thinking, are we not doing that already? <laughs> or, or should we not be doing that already? Because I can't figure out what the fear is there. If we suddenly start thinking, and this goes all the way back to when you and I started this show and before, where I said, I don't really like the term artificial intelligence. I prefer the term manufactured intelligence. Sure, right. I don't like the idea that we don't that we don't think about our place on the planet, right? Because mm-hmm. I can't figure out what this woman's fear is. Is her fear that we're all just going to like sit on the couch then from now on? Because oh, we're not top of the food chain anymore, so I might as well see what's on the tube. Or you know, is she concerned that we're going to start being more mean to each other? Or is she concerned that we're going to start being more nice to each other? I mean, once we realize that we are not. This goes, this goes too, to um, um, the Watchmen. We hmm. thought we had an enemy in not the movie, but in the, um, in, the, uh, in the comic book, The Watchmen. We thought they mm-hmm. were aliens that were going to come to destroy us. And so humanity banded together. Mm-hmm. What happens if we as humans start wondering about what it means to be human? <laughs> and, and, and why is that anathema? to this nameless person and she didn't have a name <laughs> but why is that why is that bad to this nameless person who's like wow if you if you start even thinking about the possibility that robots might have something like rights right what does that do for humanity sure and then we go back to measure of a man we go back to this you know this episode we go back to and we go back to all sorts of questions that it doesn't seem to me are bad questions to ask and that almost seemed to be what she was trying to avoid was even asking those questions because then what are we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but that that's that kind of gets to the core of one of those Star Trek messages about you know r- recognizing and exploring new life, and mm-hmm. kind of that that itic message that's in there as well. That you know just because it's not totally recognizable to you mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it doesn't have some value and some right. Right. Um, There's also something in there, though, about not assuming that you're king of the castle. Yeah. Not totally. assuming that you're top yeah. of the heap. I mean, mm-hmm. I, and maybe that's the fear. I don't know. I mean, if, if the fear is, well, this isn't what I thought it was. So I don't want to think about the fact that it might not be what I thought it was. I mean, because mm-hmm. what's her name? Dr. Farallon. There's this whole idea of intent, Right. 
She's mm-hmm. sitting there talking to a machine about why this machine is stupid to think these other machines can think. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, you're talking to a machine that thinks. And she's like, yeah, but I didn't mean to make a machine that thinks. Yeah, she, she, like, right. she won't get out of her own way. She won't get out of her own sort of, you know, that, well, that's not what I meant to do. Well, okay, but it's what happened. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. This, 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 is, this is kind of a maze um, that left me kind of amazed. <laughs> um, I, I had a question about the, the other sort of moral aspect of this. You know, data is willing to at least entertain the possibility that they will lose Picard and Geordi over the lives of the exocomps, which is a great dilemma to, to explore. You know, does it matter to him that he knows Picard and Geordi better than he knows the exocomps? Does it matter that there are three exocomps and only two of his fellow crewmates? And does it matter to him that the status of the exocomps life is unknown? We we don't really have proof. We haven't explored it yet. It's sort of an unknown thing. Um, so I, I, I wonder in his ability to weigh out those decisions, do, do those things ha- have any play? Because we've had similar discussions before about a moral conundrum like this. You know, who do you allow to die if somebody has to die? Mm-hmm. One of our listeners and, and friend of the show, Chris Bauer. Hi, Chris. Uh, pointed out to me a few weeks ago the moral machine online. Have you ever heard of this? No. So what it's really about is trying to get a human perspective on machine morality, and particularly it has to do with self-driving cars. So you go to this website to search up a moral machine, go to this website, Mm -hmm. and they say, okay, here's here's the deal. Imagine that you're in a self-driving car. Now, here are all these opportunities for things to go wrong. So you're driving along, and the car is either going to run into a barricade and kill you and the other people who are in the car, or avoid the barricade, but it will hit people who are in the crosswalk. Mm -hmm. What do you do? And then it changes those conditions a little bit. Um, How many people are in the crosswalk? How old are the people in the crosswalk? How many people are in the car with you? Are there children in the crosswalk? You know, all these conditions that get added onto that. And I guess the idea is that they keep taking in this survey information of how people answer that. And then that would help them to program cars in the future to be able to make a moral decision. It is absolutely mind-blowing that we're at a place that we're doing that now with a real tangible effect on the technology that we will be using. (laughs) (laughs) You know? I'm sorry. Why don't we just take a train? Yeah, there you go. Even better. Not to be a jerk, but seriously, I mean, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, right? I need to Mm -hmm. sit in a car with two other people and maybe I'm going to die or maybe those 50 people that I'm going to hit are going to die for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just all take a train? Of course, then everybody could die on the train, but at least I have nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. It's not being, ah, I'm sorry. I'm not being a wise Enheimer. (laughs) i'm I'm wondering uh yeah no but but that's good you're looking for another alternative yeah i am looking for another alternative yes Mm -hmm. that's true and you know one that might also be because there's still uh, i I know i know i'm getting caught on the wrong thing there i'm just i'm trying to do uh what is it it's the utilitarian thing right 
I guess it is anyway. Mm hmm. If I yeah. understand that, although if you remember back to my discussion of, of <laughs> Socrates having a throwdown with somebody, <laughs> yeah, it's not 100% clear that I understand utilitarianism either. <laughs> um, there was one other, uh, you mentioned moral question. There was one other moral question I had here uh, yeah. earlier. Should they really leave the exocomps under the care of Dr. Farallon? Hmm. I mean, I do believe that she won't lobotomize them again, but let's be clear, that's what she was talking about doing, right? Right. Data's like, right. I think they're alive. And she's like, well, what if we just cut the part with the thinks? What if, <laughs> right. what if we just yeah. cut off access to the part that thinks, and then we can make it do whatever we want to? Yeah. Um, okay, but we've all decided now that they're new life forms, you know, the likes of which no one has ever seen except for Data or Lore or, or Viger. Or the ultimate computer. The ultimate, ultimate computer. computer. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Or Good. Landru or Vol or Norman or Andrea or Moriarty. Oh, the point yeah. is, <laughs> these things are like totally new and totally unique. Yeah. Um, we asked them whether they wanted to be blown up for the good of society, and they declined. But then they went ahead and, you know, came up with another solution. And then uh, one of them went ahead and sacrificed itself. So that's kind of cool. Should we not ask them... Okay, so you feel good staying here with this person who's killed who knows how many of you? Because that's yeah. the other thing, right? She says, like, oh, yeah, at this point they just kind of turned to crap. So we, uh, you know, we wipe them and start over. Mm -hmm. how, many, how many exocomps has she killed? Oh. And now oh. we're just going to, like, leave them there. Now, I mean, it's... <laughs> I don't trust her. I don't trust and, well, her. Well, I mean, that's the no. thing. I don't know. And and why did we not ask them? Maybe, you know, they would like to live with data, you know? Yeah. Maybe they'd like to go to the academy. I did honestly. Have, no, I, no, I but because he, you know who's there is Bruce Maddox. And, oh, that's true. Uh, and I, that that's might true. just be a bad idea as well. I yeah. did have an idea, though. I think it would be a fantastic novel to read where mm. there is an exocomp who is the captain of a starship. Mm-hmm. Like maybe sixty, yes. seventy years down the road, yep. And uh, they they might also uh, they might have bodies this time. Otherwise, where does the uniform go? Ken's idea of an exocompass starship captain seems a bit much. Maybe as executive officer, though. Then they could be XOXO. I would love them. Like XOXO, they would love me. Like XOXO. So, Ken, I know that uh, here in the quality of life, I I've picked up already the most important thing, which is that um, it's the struggle. That, that really is what life is all about. But, but, but I feel like there might be more. There might be more to learn uh, than just the wise words of Dr. Beverly Crusher. So as we wrap things up here and figure out uh, what those messages are, I pose it to you if uh, the quality of life holds up as an episode. I am glad to say I believe so. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm glad to say I believe so is I remember hating this episode when it first came out. Hmm. Like I watched it and I was annoyed by it. Hmm. And I think the reason I was annoyed by it was because we've sort of addressed these issues with other things. Take measure of a man or take home soil. You know, these things that don't seem like they would be alive or yeah. how we treat these things that may or may not be alive. I think part of the problem that I have with the episode, and I certainly mean her no offense, but the, but the woman who played, um, 
Dr. Farallon really is a little too earnest. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And and I think maybe that's the part that kind of got to me. And they say the word exocomp 78 times <laughs> or maybe a few more. I believe you're right. Yeah. And so I remember those things like being things that bothered me when I first saw the episode. Now, mm-hmm. I don't remember whether I watched A Fistful of Datas the week before I watched The Quality of Life when it was first aired. I don't know if I was watching consistently then or not. We've had some clunkers lately sure that first of all i'm happy to have meat again i'm happy to have something Mm -hmm. to chew on in this episode in ways that we certainly didn't get last week and in ways that have been kind of hit or miss lately um and of course it does go i mean what amazes me is how much i hated this episode when i first saw it years ago because i mean it's it's totally playing to all my stuff you know the whole (laughs) thinking episode i mean the whole uh, thinking machines and you know all those things so with the exception of, I mean, yeah, you can tell that the exocomps are being run like puppets. Yes, right. you know, she is a little earnest. But with the exception of those small things, oh, and Jordy, you know, explaining exactly what's going on at the end. I mean, they, yeah. <laughs> practically what was happening with the exocomps practically could have happened entirely off screen because Jordy is just yeah. standing there narrating it because, you know, if you just had a picture of it. It's really just the three machines sitting there, like, shooting each other. Right. In a way. Right. Um, and yet, I say all that, and there's enough there's enough meat here for, for me to chew on that, yeah, I personally think this episode holds up. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I, you know, when, when we ask each other if it holds up, we're, we're kind of, that's a very vague question. Um, and sometimes we lean on the side of just talking about production value, script quality, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of right in the middle for me, where it, it's mostly very good. Um, I think most of the cast are very good. I think the Exocomp, I you know, other than the robot shoes maybe being a little distracting, um, I, I think it's a, a pretty interesting design. But I also feel like there are things that feel like, well, we're on a TV budget here. Mm-hmm. Um, that that set, that one set that's the interior over at the station where the, the mining operation is based feels very claustrophobic, which is cool. I know you want it to feel claustrophobic, but it also feels like, well, we could put this together with parts that we had around, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> Witness the fact that we can actually rent that thing. That we can actually rent it. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, the, the makeup on Dr. Farallon is probably not the finest makeup in Star Trek The Next Generation history. Um, but again, it's TV budget, TV budget, TV budget. Now, regardless of the production value, um, I think the story is an intriguing story. And, and we ask does the episode hold up? Part of that question is asking, is it Star Trek? Does it hit kind of the the marks that we think make it a piece of Star Trek, as opposed to just something that's kind of a throwaway or forgettable episode? Mm-hmm. Um, and in that respect, uh, yeah, it, it absolutely does hold up. It, it, and that's why I pointed it out in my um, in my recap, that it goes right back to the mission statement of Star Trek. 
to explore new life, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is absolutely something that speaks to the heart of what Star Trek is about. And, and hopefully you're doing that from week to week with intriguing characters and intriguing drama. So it poses a lot of questions that aren't neatly wrapped up by the end of it. Uh, in fact, by the end of it, now that you've pointed it out, I'm a little worried that those exocomps are staying with Dr. <laughs> Farallon. That just opens up more questions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> she's dead like in a week. You know that. Right? I know. Right. Yeah. yeah the yeah. exocomps are like, hey, yeah, wait a minute. Yeah. What did happen to all those other exocomps? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any of you guys see Silent Running? Is it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted them to be Huey, Dewey, and Louie. I wanted them to yeah, be so yeah. bad. They, yeah, they, they could have been. Um, so in that respect, I think it holds up very nicely. And and it does present intriguing ideas for the audience to chew on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but more so than that, the messages, what, what do we get out of this in terms of messages, morals or meaning? Um, I'm going to take all the science fiction out of it, I think. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's stuff there about artificial intelligence and, and the things we make. And, you know, it really comes down to preconceived notions. To me, it comes down to mm-hmm. her thinking, no, this is a thing that I built. It was this thing. It cannot be anything else. I mean, it comes down to working with blinders. Um, and maybe you can make it a work thing if you want to. I mean, Dr. Farallon is her work in the same way that Riker says he's his work. But she really is. It's the first thing she thinks of in the morning and the last thing she thinks about at night. She says herself, and it ends up blinding her to something much more important. Literally, it blinds her to life. Now, I don't think that's just about work, though. I think that's about laser focus. It's about not looking outside. It's about not looking around. It's about deciding things and wanting the things that you decide to be true to the point that you you will brook no opposition to the ideas that you have. No, these things aren't alive. You're stupid. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's mm-hmm. pretty much it. Yeah. Of yeah. course, of course, you mine from orbit thinking anything <laughs> else would be dumb. So, I mean, I think, you know, she's blithely killing these things because yeah. it doesn't even cross her mind that they could be alive. And then when somebody tries to cross her mind with that idea, I mean, she wants to she wants to shout them down and shut them up. And that's wrong. And and that's a lesson that, you know, fingers crossed, she actually learns when we leave her with these new charges that are actually alive, not just these Swiss Army tools that she thought they were. So that's kind nice. of the one that I get, I don't want to say get stuck on, but that's sort of, that's, if I'm going to take one message from the show, that's the one I'm going to take. What about you? Hmm. I wondered if we're in that territory again, where Star Trek every now and then has this slightly technophobic feel to it Hmm. you know don't don't push the technology too fast because you'll end up truly out of your league you might even create life and then what you know we go back to um the original series go back to miri where you've got this message underlying there which is don't push the technology too far don't don't mess with mother nature because Mm -hmm. it'll only come back to bite you in the end you know? See, that's interesting, though. I would almost argue that the message in Mary is not about not pushing technology, but about trying to cheat death, which you know, don't misunderstand. I'm all for trying to cheat death. I still sure, think yeah. Dr. Yeah. Roger Corby was largely misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> not entirely, but largely. Yeah. Maybe so. There's a difference. I think the difference, though, that, I mean, going back to what we had just been talking about a moment ago. Mm-hmm. The problem with Miri is not even necessarily life prolongation, but but with trying to keep our primacy. I can beat death. 
okay, or I can beat robots, or, you know, nothing's as good as me. I'm so good, I really need to live for 300 years, not the theoretically 126 plus that I'll be able to live Mm -hmm. as a member of the Federation. So I I didn't get a technophobic vibe off this one personally. Hmm. But, you know, one of the things that we always say is so cool about uh, shows like this, uh, different people can watch it and pick up different things. So um, I'm going to let you have that one, John. You're welcome. <laughs> well, You're welcome. Well, well see, here, here's the thing. I, I, I think that actually goes back to my feeling about Dr. Farallon being a bad scientist, hmm. that she is blinded, you know, to talk about, you know, put it in terms that you're you're talking about here. Uh, she's sort of blinded by her ambition. She's blinded by what she wants to be true mm-hmm. that is preventing her from seeing what actually is true. She she wants the evidence to fit the hypothesis instead of following the evidence where it leads. Right. So, yeah, she's she is her own worst enemy in in all of those respects. Um, now that that's not specifically about the technology, but it is about how she sees it. It's about how she interacts with it. So, um, well, it's about how she interacts with the technology. But I mean, you could you could write that story about anything. Sure. I mean, you sure. know, blinded by X, so you don't see Y. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. Either the letter Y or W H Y. Dude, Ooh, somebody should be writing yeah. this stuff down. I'm on a deep roll oh. tonight. Deep, deep, I tell you. <laughs> Good. <sighs> Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Find out more about the deep things Roddenberry's up to at roddenberry.com. Remember, you can support Mission Log directly by joining Patreon. Patreon.com slash Mission Log. Uh, for members, we have cool, exclusive gifts as a way to thank you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Chain of Command. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I am not saying that I am a vengeful machine. I will say, knowing my own pathways, someone should check on Dr. Farallon relatively soon. End transmission.